Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm Jason Pete. G'day everyone. Great to be here. Can you please stop clowning around? Uh, it is episode... So we've got a bonus episode for you guys. It's coming yeah. out on a Tuesday. We've got another show coming for you on Friday. I think this is... We're calling this episode 152. While it is a bonus episode, I'm treating it as canon and part of the part of the collected repertoire that we have. Hmm. Absolutely. Correct. The only other Agreed. bonus cool. episode we've done was with Joffa. That was true, yes. Uh, and this week we have an equally incredible guest to Joffa. We have Brendan O'Neill, great friend of the show, editor of Spiked. Yeah. We're going to be talking about the lockdown in the UK, the culture it has created among uh, the police and among the public as well. And, uh, you know, just sort of getting his perspective on something we've been talking about on this podcast. And obviously it's all over the media. It's the balance between public safety and civil liberty. So we're going to be talking a lot about all of that. Anything you're looking forward to in the show, Pete? Well, I sort of regretted the fact that we didn't ask Brendan O'Neill about how he'd feel about taking over the Collingwood cheer squad because we know that our mate, good mate Joffa has gone to Fiji, so we should have asked him that. But um, it is a really, really good interview, and my highlight is when he talks about the Queen's speech because after that interview last night, I watched it, and it was fantastic. Well, there we go. Uh, sorry, glad you watched it after the interview, uh, which is when I would have liked you to have watched it. But anyway, let's talk about some of the I watched things clips before it. that... Okay, good. Uh, that's all I can ask is you watch a clip of a four minutes speech. All right, let us talk, Pete. Let's get into it. Let's talk Yeah. Uh, about the ABC. About what, sorry? I didn't quite catch the that ABC. The ABC. The ABC. Oh, of course. Yeah, uh, that's the, the, the number one story that we discussed before the show that we're going to talk about. So you probably would have seen that Gideon Rosner released a video over the weekend. The IPAs begin to end the lockdown now, it made quite a splash. It was making the case for easing restrictions incrementally over the next little period of time to make sure the cost of whatever we're doing to fight coronavirus isn't as bad, isn't worse than coronavirus itself. So a pretty basic point. Obviously caused a little bit of a splash. Now, I'm going to play a little clip of this video, uh, and then I'm going to play you a clip of the version that ABC Drive 774 played to their audience. Now, with Gideon's clip, I want you to especially look out for the phrase, do it safely the lockdown that is, uh, ending the lockdown that is, with appropriate social distancing measures in place. So I'll roll the tape. It's time to allow for the sensible reopening of churches, restaurants, cafes, bars, community sport. Do it safely with appropriate social distancing measures in place. But do it. Now, there we go. Great, stu- great stuff from Gideon. Very nice. Now, let's hear that the clip that the ABC Drive people played to their audience. And I want you to look out for what happens to the to the phrase, appropriate social distancing measures in place. It's time these restrictions were eased. It's time to allow for the sensible reopening of churches, restaurants, cafes, bars, community sport. Do it safely, but do it. Oh, I don't know what happened, James. What happened there, mate? Do you know how much effort it takes to... Sorry, you go. No, 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 please. I I cut you off mid-rant. That's all right. Wait, do you know how much effort it takes to go in and edit something like that? Like, it's not like they left out the last 30 seconds or something. They actually went in there and Saul Muscatel, our producer, will be able to tell you how difficult it actually is to go in and take out a few words in the middle of someone's spiel. You know, it's very difficult. He's had to do it a few times on this podcast, but that's what they've done to this video that Gideon's made. Is that lying? Is that the same as just lying? Uh, well, lying might be uh, something that is a litigious thing to say, but it's certainly... <laughs> you know, it's you. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Just uh, put me on that one. But it's like, it's a thing where 
journalists will do remove parts of the sentences that aren't exactly the most important and put that dot 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 in just for the sake of like speed. I would mm. say with appropriate social distancing measures in place is one of the more important sentences in that video. Like of all the sentences to get rid of, and I think, you know, every word of Gideon, you know, it's et cetera, et cetera. But of all the sentences to get rid of, that is not the sentence to get rid of. Mate, we know that appropriate social distancing saves lives. So you've got to leave that bit in. There's no reason at all to take that out. And I just reckon these people, right? Like, so they say, oh, you know, we speak truth to power. We're the real balanced news. ABC journos listening to this. You are no better than a trashy current affairs tabloid journo. This is exactly the same thing. Get off your high horse. This is unbelievable for one of your premier radio shows to do something like this. I'm sure Media Watch will do it tonight or next week, whenever it is. Uh, they did it last night. I, what I like about this is, uh, for you, last week you called someone scum. This week you're calling ABC hack journos. There's something about working from home that has really unleashed uh, a very just angry and violent Peter Gregory. Do you uh, wish to comment? I don't think, I don't think violence is the right word, and I don't think angry is the right word either. But I mean, clearly, being by yourself means that I think you're know, up and you're, about. You're ba- your base tendencies don't get curtailed by other people as much. So, you know, you're just sitting in your kitchen and, you know, who knows who's listening to this. At least when, you know, it's me and you together, there's another person there and I can gauge their reactions and stuff. No, but I mean, it's true. They, like, what they like to think of themselves and portray themselves as important journalists speaking truth to power and then they do stuff like this. Like, what is this? What is this? Yeah, it's 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 very grim stuff. Uh, yeah, and again... We paid for it. Like, uh, this is yeah. a thing that everyone pays for with taxpayer money, and I have no choice as to whether or not they don't get money when they do reporting like that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, if you don't like the Young IPA podcast, that's fine, but you don't have I to I don't understand why you wouldn't. Yeah, I don't, what's your problem? But yeah, <laughs> I, I, Are you a narc? You know, you are, don't... You, are you a narc if you don't like this? <laughs> what's wrong with you? Yeah. Anyway. Just, <laughs> that's another conversation for another day. Uh, all right, so... <laughs> Another point, uh, sorry, another story we want to talk about. So last week we were talking about how there's some growing ideas that some of the lockdown measures that people have taken, uh, that governments have taken up, might be overreaching the mark on the trade-off between civil liberties and public safety. I'd say that this is now a growing position. I wouldn't say it's majority yet, but I definitely think more and more people are coming forward, including some health professionals saying like, okay, well, maybe we don't need this particular like maybe we don't need people sitting by themselves in a park to be moved on because that's not exactly a way that you're going to transmit or catch the virus when you're completely by yourself in a public open space that's exactly right mate i saw an interesting piece by peter collignon who's a professor of infectious disease at australian university medical school and we're seeing more and more stuff like this come out uh who is obviously knows all about this stuff and he says you know that fortunately in australia the numbers for coronavirus are not just flattening they're actually going down which is great uh and he said that the measures that we've introduced have caused that which is really good he also went on to say this is the key sentence what we're not seeing however is evidence for what justifies the latest victorian and new south wales lockdown laws so he's talking about the stuff people getting moved on from sitting in parks people banned from fishing we're going to talk a little bit later about it El plater who absolutely copped it uh for uh practicing driving uh, he wrote. He went on to write, if it's deemed reasonably safe to be two metres apart in supermarkets and workplaces, how can this be wrong for people to be outdoors in our parks, beaches or in the countryside? He says that you know, if we keep these things in place, it's mixed messaging and over time people will stop actually following it. Uh, and I think he's right. I think that you know, 
All sorts of things in our society are dangerous, but we manage them with sort of adequate laws to, to make sure that the worst aspects of those activities don't happen, but there's still a bit of risk involved with them. If you look at stuff like driving, uh, drinking and smoking, those three things together cause 27,000 deaths a year in Australia. And if we banned all of those things, we'd save 27,000 lives. And if we did that for a few years or even one year, potentially on how bad coronavirus is, that would be save more lives than all the things we're doing for coronavirus. And when you think about it, banning smoking and banning drinking and banning driving, that's less of an imposition on our liberties than what we're doing now. So, you know, it, it just seems to be like a disproportionate response. Clearly, we have to do things like work from home, maintain social distancing, you know, ban large gathering if necessary. But we can start now to begin to think about uh, changing little things so that we can start to live our lives again and the cost isn't isn't so terrible um, of what we're doing. You know, maintain social distancing, continue to work from home, but you can go to the park or you can go fishing, stuff like that. Yeah. By the way, for people listening at home, like we're recording this at 10.23, the Pell Verdict has just come out and I've got Twitter on my screen and it it's a great day for Twitter. There is a lot of great tweets getting sent out. Uh, I know what I'm going to be doing for the rest of the day. What just did you say? Twitter. The Pell verdict just came out, so oh. I am just going to be scrolling Twitter for the rest of the day because people are saying their opinions. <laughs> it is, there's a lot of opinions people, going around, and I want to read I, all of them. I'm surprised that there's a lot of opinions about the Pell verdict. There are That's more than one opinion about the George Pell conviction. Uh, now, a huge so what you were saying, uh, there's this idea that, like, okay... We're 100%, we're in a medical emergency, but medical emergencies don't exist in a vacuum, as you were pointing out. Medical emergencies, like, they're just yeah. one part of everything else. That's what I meant to say. Yeah, so, <laughs> as you say, if you want to, like, the way to make sure that we never have anyone hit in a drink driving accident ever again is to ban the use of alcohol and anyone caught drink driving is shot without trial. You'd have zero yeah. tomorrow, you'd never have another drink driving incident. Yeah, that sounds like a bit of an imposition on everyone else. So coronavirus is no different. Like we want to keep social distancing. We want to stop gatherings of more than 500 people. But you also have to trade that off with people's love of civil liberties. And yeah, like like I said last week, if you start cracking down on people sitting by themselves in a park with no one around for 50 meters, you those those are the kind of people that are going to tune out of actually important health measures because they just go, well, it's all just too much. Uh, sorry, that's, I don't exactly that's the point this guy makes. Yeah, so the other part of the turning of the tide that I want to talk about is we're seeing the effects of some of the economic measures that governments are taking. And this, this all right, so this is going to get grim, and I apologize because maybe some people tune into this podcast for a bit of a break from all the grim news, but it is important. So the number one <laughs> thing that people are seeing right now is the spikes in unemployment. All right, so here's a few stats. And we get into Britain's situation with Brendan O'Neill, but 20% of France's work, workforce is now unemployed. 20%, that's a lot. 6.6 million Americans sought unemployment benefits last week and 3.3 million did two weeks ago. So that's 10 million Americans seeking unemployment insurance. And 717,000 Australians have uh, lost their jobs, according to YPA research, or are going to. And uh, an AFI report says unemployment could go to 9% this year. Now, that's a curve we didn't flatten as a society. That is a spike. That is a huge spike. That was not a gradual rollout. That was not, okay, we're going to take care of you. At the start, it was, you've lost your job. We'll figure out what the rest is later. I mean, the wage subsidy stuff still hasn't passed. People are missing. And, and you know, people are trying to pay rent payments when they don't have the money because they lost their job two weeks ago. They still don't have their wage subsidies. So that's the spike that I'm also concerned about. And this gets particularly grim, but you also talk about 
Uh, okay, so the, I read this article from Indie Star, which is like Indiana's biggest paper, and it said Indie Two One One, which is like Indiana's uh, Lifeline or Beyond Blue. They usually have about a thousand calls a day, and they're now having twenty five thousand. Now, some of that could be anxiety from coronavirus itself, but I'm also hearing a lot of people that go, "I just lost my job. I'm scared," or my job stops me uh, from sitting around in my house taking drugs all day, and now don't don't have a job. What am I going to do? So, like. I get the medical emergency. There's also an economic emergency and a social emergency that happens when you start taking away people's civil liberties and when you start taking away people's jobs. And that's like, you know, the IPA cops a bit of flack in the media for being a bit anti, like they call us anti-lockdown. These are the people we're concerned about, people that are losing a whole lot of things at a time that, you know, we do need to make restrictions, but I'm not seeing the same public... uh, concentration on what's going to happen to people who lose their jobs and lose their sense of meaning. That's exactly right. And as this guy says, a lot of these restrictions have been brought in on the fly. You know, they've been just sort of, feels like a bit of panic from government seem to be doing things uh, without the, the correct thought process. And I get that it's hard because, you know, we don't know everything about this virus. But um, as he says, you know, we've got to look at the evidence. There's no point doing things that are going to make things worse in the long run. And anyone who raises issues with this doesn't mean that they hate old people and that they don't care that old people are dying. They just want to make the best decision that we can make for our country and for our world. All right, uh, Pete, I apologize to you. I actually skipped the second story and went straight to the third story, which you were going to introduce. I noticed. My bad. Uh, That is the problem with me working off a laptop and I do like to have printed out sheets in front of my face. I just, I like... Buy a printer, mate. Sorry? Buy a printer, mate. Can I have the economy you need you to spend? Okay, uh, now, should I take Boris or do you want to do it as like no, a you token take Boris, of good mate. gesture? All right, so Boris My Johnson, plans. we've known that he has coronavirus for uh, about a week and a half now, taken a hospital over the weekend, and then this morning it comes out he's in the intensive care unit. Uh, there's reports on Twitter that he's conscious and not on a ventilator, which is good news in all of this. And a few journalists close to him have said like when he, when he was diagnosed with coronavirus and he was working from home, he didn't really take his foot off the gas pedal at all. And you can just sort of imagine that with that workload and also sickness, this is just sort of a collapse. So as, as grim as it is that he's, this situation is worsening, there's enough there where you're just sort of like, well, maybe this is more precaution, hopefully. Uh, but let's, the thing I want to talk about with Boris is one, like that's a huge story. Uh, and then second, if you tweeted karma when he got it, and now you go, look, I don't agree with his policies, but I don't want someone to die. You're not a good person. Like that—that's nah. not, that's not the late. bar we set. Like, not wanting someone to die of coronavirus is not where the bar is. <laughs> like, nah. the bar is so much higher than that. If you think, look at me, look at me uh, going over the political divide by not wishing death on a political enemy. Sorry, it together. <laughs> you're gonna have to work a little bit harder than that. No, I couldn't agree more. And we saw when um, Peter Dutton got coronavirus, just the absolute vitriol that was on Twitter and some of the most disgusting comments you can possibly imagine. But uh, no, you're right. You know, there's there sort of there's not much to say about this story other than you hope he gets better. Um, and then there's the social media element to it. They, he has been handed over some of his well, all of his responsibilities to Dominic Raab, who is the foreign secretary. So that's a big thing because, as he's mentioned, he hadn't he'd been just continuing to be Prime Minister despite having it. So that uh, indicates it has got a little bit more serious, but, you know, he's 55. You'd assume he's pretty healthy based on the fact he's Prime Minister. Um, I don't know why you'd assume that actually now that I think about it. But, um, yeah, hope, hope, hope he gets better. Hopefully this sort of thing is the kind of thing where people go, you know what, let's just 
clean up the internet a little bit. Let's just stop being so mean to people because opinions can hurt and you don't really need to tweet out that you're glad someone got coronavirus. Exactly right. And I know in the spirit of, um, you know, what's the word, sort of unity and, and uh, you know, going forward together and being nicer to each other, the left are way worse at this than the right. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, let's be honest, I don't know. We- they are so much worse and they get away with it so much more. I uh, I live in a like we all live in a bubble, so maybe there are like I, I always go, maybe I'm just not seeing the extent to which the other side are doing it. But anyway, uh now do you want to talk about EU or am I just going all can four? I, can I tell you what it is? On uh on our side of things, conservative, liberal, blah blah blah, it's more actually you know what, don't worry about it. I haven't got it. We can discuss it next week when I've thought about that it. That's podcast gold. That is radio gold right there. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I can't. Yeah, people I listening wanna, at home that people that listening at home they want to start a podcast. They want to know how to do it. That was your starter course. I don't think there's any problem with showing you working. You know, showing you working. <laughs> hey, I've always said let's, that. I've always said that. You know, we're all human beings here. All right. So speaking uh, of showing you working, I've stepped all over your toes on stories so far. So do you want to take EU or am I? You keep just- nah. Keep going with EU. I felt like I got enough of my story to feel happy. You better do the EU, mate. Okay, fair enough. So Angela Merkel, uh, I think it was last night or this morning or overnight or at least within the last thirteen hours, has said that the uh, coronavirus is the biggest crisis the EU has ever faced. To give people an idea what's going on, so Germany and the Netherlands have been criticised by Italy and Spain, which are obviously the two countries uh, worst affected by the coronavirus outbreak when you talk about like deaths per million people. Uh, so Italy and Spain have been uh, calling for the common debt to uh, the Eurozone issue common debt to cushion the economic p- impact of the pandemic. Germany and the Netherlands saying, no, we're not going to do that. Same sort of problems they've been having for years now. You think about like the GFC and uh, when Greece failed, which is there's countries with a lot of money, there's countries without a lot of money, and the countries without a lot of money wanted some of that money, and the countries with the money aren't exactly going to hold hand it over. Uh, pretty big that Merkel, who was also Prime Minister through GFC, is now saying that this is the biggest EU crisis she's ever been a part of or the biggest crisis the EU has ever faced. Uh, I mean, I kind of go always bet on the house at EU like I mean look how long it took Brexit to pass and that was just one nation so I don't exactly see the EU falling apart over this but what I do like uh, what I do notice with these sort of stories is it's always like the Italians and the Spanish having to go the Germans and the Dutch and you just think if the EU's been there for 60 years and we're still talking about different nationalities as like thinking about one entity then maybe the EU's goal of like one harmonious Europe just isn't going to be realized 60 years of peace and we're still at Germany versus Italy well that's exactly right the EU was created was meant to be able to deal with crises better than individual nations. That's why when we saw during Brexit, we saw all these sort of smug, snarky comments about how the EU is meant to have prevented World War II from happening again. Like, that's the amazing European dream. If you can imagine, like, some EU bureaucrat saying, you know, we will fight them on the beaches and Hitler going, okay, yeah, better stop. That's an interesting thought uh, bubble, but thought experiment. But anyway, uh, it's meant to be able to deal with crises better. And I think... It just makes it more difficult. It's this big bureaucratic machine. There's heaps of conflicting parties. There's subcommittees of subcommittees of subcommittees. It's really hard to get things done. And, you know, all the countries that you talk about who are dealing with this crisis well, none of them are in the EU. So it's interesting. Very interesting. All right, let's head over to our heroes and villains. So I think we still have the AV for Grunt the Freedom Pig. <laughs> 
this is the snort of freedom. This is what we award to people that have stood up for liberty and for good things around the world this week. So, Pete, who is well, your if, hero of the week? If we don't have the AV, James, why don't you give us a give us a snort just for? Uh, no, well, snort. you're the snort king. So, why don't you give us one? It was my idea, mate. No, we definitely do have the AV. I've I've complete trust in <laughs> on your muskie. Oh, he's just got it. Someone's got to do it. All right, come on, keep it going. What's that? Oh, okay, so hero is uh. The hero this week, James, is Gideon Roster, who a quick Google of the IPA website un- un- uh, revealed he's Hope actually he the director of policy. Yeah, he's the director of policy. So his national... Oh, okay. So the reason why Gideon Rosner is the hero, my hero this week is because throughout the debates we've had in this country about plastic bags, supermarkets banning plastic bags or not using plastic bags and the Victorian government actually banning them, single-use plastic bags I'm talking about, is Gideon Rosner always said that the tote bags, studies indicated, the reusable bags that people were meant to use instead of plastic bags actually have uh, a higher chance of transmitting germs. And now he's right. In the host of this pandemic, in the middle of this pandemic, we're seeing places all across America that are now uh, banning the use of reusable bags because of the germ issue. So Gideon Rosner should have been listened to back at the time. San Francisco has just banned the use of reusable tote bags and switched back to single-use plastic bags to help spread the, the uh, spread help fight the spread of coronavirus. Now, they banned reusable plastic bags in 2007. Uh, New Hampshire, the governor, signed an executive order to the same effect. Massachusetts also followed suit. Um, and Maine, a ban, on plas- has a ban on plastic bags, was meant to take effect on April 22 in Maine, but it's been pushed back till next year. So Gideon Rosner... You're my hero this week, as as long as, as well as the humble plastic bag, which has copped all this grief over the last few years. There was a National Review article about the plastic bag, which said single plastic bags, single-use plastic bags, are a miracle of modern technology. They're cheap, they're uh, ubiquitous, they're all over the place. So Gideon Rosner, in addition to the humble plastic bag, you are my heroes this week. Very good. All right, so my hero is Jay Williams, who is a former NBA player turned analyst because he has been copying it a lot this week because he pushed for uh, the rest of the NBA season to be taken on board a cruise ship. Now, people who listen to the show know I have quite the affinity for American sports and sports in general. And he copped it because people going, that's ridiculous. How do you get all the NBA players on a cruise ship? How are you even going to have a tournament? Look, I want sports back, okay? There's no bad ideas in a brainstorm. And we need to get some sports back because I need things to do, okay? I can only read for so long. I can only go on so many walks. I need sports back. And cruise ship, fine. How about this? The rest of the AFL, we find one island in Australia where there is no coronavirus cases. And we send the AFL players there. They can take their families. I will personally foot the bill. We can have the rest of the season go on. You'll fit the bill. Back. <laughs> well, I'm sure I'd... if we pass the hat around, we can get the AFL back on an island somewhere. I mean, Superdome well, in the sky on. is clearly the safest, but we need an island free of coronavirus. We'll just bring supplies to them. Just give me footy. Well, it feels like a thousand years ago now, but the Australian government were quarantining people on Christmas Island. I assume they still are. Why don't they just have it there? But uh, I think you're right. And I think the question has to start to be asked, when are they going to bring sports back? Like, I'm not saying put people in the stadium, but if you've got all these healthy guys and women and you know we're getting better testing uh, whatever testing mechanisms or whatever, maybe we should start to be bringing sports back in empty stadiums. To give so over the weekend, to... Donald Trump called the commissioners of the big sports leagues over in America and also the commissioner of the WWE. So wrestling is back. Uh, okay. And he said, how do we get sports back by September? Which made me so sad inside. By September? 
by September. Now, the article then went on to say that he wanted fans in the stadiums, so maybe that's a stipulation. Like, how do we get fans yeah. in the stadiums? And maybe we have sports back without fans before then. But, boy, if it's September, it, that I, 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 I'm tearing up right now thinking about no sports till September. So that is such a Trump move. Like, it's really... He just gets, like, the public. Like, he knows that his base loves sports, and he also knows that an empty stadium, while it's better than nothing, is a little bit depressing. Yeah. I really want to watch those clips because the WWE had a tournament with no fans. So you just think of anything in the world that needs fans to be there. It's the wrestling. So I kind of want to see what that is like with no fans. Yeah, it would be. uh, Then I don't watch it when there are fans and think it's stupid. So I'm not as interested (laughs) in that idea as you. But um, let me know how it goes. Yeah, no no, no sports to September is, 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 that is a depressing thought. Um, You know. All right, let's move on. I'm getting sad. For Colour TV. All right, villains. So I interview the villains because, you know, I'm sort of the dark side. I don't, I don't know what that means. But um, so the villain of the villain of the week we, we call the uh, Extinction Rebellion nude, uh, fake nudie run. The Extinction Rebellion fake nudie run because that's what Extinction Rebellion did when they were having protests in Melbourne. They did a fake nudie run. So all rolled up footage. As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. As you can see, none of those people are And if we nude. didn't have the footage like we didn't have for the pig, are you going to give us a nudie run? <laughs> well, seeing as you asked, no. No nudie <laughs> run. Watch all the YouTube views just absolutely skyrocket next week. Um, so, YouTube, yeah. James, give us your villain. <laughs> oh, okay. This is a family podcast. All right, so my villain of the week is the now-departed Scotland's chief medical officer, uh, Dr. Catherine Calderwood. Now, again, we we talk about this... we talk about this with Brendan, how there's like one rule for people with really nice houses. I think my GoPro just shut off sore, so let's really hope this is recording. Uh, there's So, Catherine Gold, Dr. Catherine Calderwood, UK lockdowns are very extreme. Now, Dr. Catherine Calderwood made two trips to her second home during the coronavirus lockdown, which is very outside of her own uh, recommendations to everyone else. She had earlier been given a police warning for breaking the lockdown rules after going on a day trip to a country town. Now... If there's one, like, if, if you're passing lockdowns, it also applies to you. That's unbelievable. That How bad is that? Sorry, like, it was like this whole big kerfuffle, she's now resigned, but I'm sorry, lockdowns apply to everyone. And if it's safe enough for you to go on day trips, and if it's safe enough to you to go to your second home, it's safe enough to, for me to sit in a park by myself and read a book. I don't understand how self-entitled you'd have to be to do that, to think I'm going to shut the whole country down, but I'm still going to... Do what I want. That's incredible. Yeah. It did, did, as, so, you, as you say, it sort of does illustrate that, you know, rule for us, rule for other people mindset yeah. that is there. Yeah. Well, it's like the idea that if you pass these like very restrictive things, because you can't really have nuance, like if you say uh, you can only exercise as your group, if you're like going towards exercise, Theoretically, that's okay, but if you go to exercise with 50 people, that's bad. So, therefore, you have to crack down on people exercising by themselves. But it's just like, uh, uh, sorry, no. Like, you do need the new ones. We don't. We can't have these sweeping laws that change every day and just be expected to keep up with it. Anyway, uh, I'm going over the same ground again for probably the third time. So, do you want to hit us with your villain? <laughs> okay, yeah. So, my my villain is Vic Pole, Victoria Police. A 17-year-old learner driver was left shocked. To be fair, it's one fired. dude. It was one dude, and I think they're going to overturn the fine. <laughs> no, it was a, it was a, it was a female police officer, but uh, it's still Vic Pole. It's still okay. So you reckon I should make it just the one person? I reckon just the one person because I think they're overturning the fine, and there's a whole lot of good police officers out there that don't exactly oh. do this stuff. So 
Yeah, okay. Like, I'm not... But been, the police have been playing up in Victoria. And okay, fair enough. Right. I'll, I'll stop days. interrupting. So, and I'll give, you, I'll give you a quote that she gives as well, which shows you that it should be the whole police force. Anyway, whoever it is, 17-year-old Luna was left shocked after being fined more than 1,600 uh, bucks for driving with her bum during the lockdown. Cherie Reynolds was supervising her daughter, Hunter, as they drove from their Hampton home. They were pulled over by police. Uh, and they live together, right? So they know that, you know, that's it's not like they're infecting other people. They didn't stop anywhere. They're in their car, driving along. It's like they walk from their house to their car, drove around a bit, come back. The only person they came across was the police officer. Now, the mum says, we didn't think for one minute that we'd be doing anything wrong. We're in contact. We weren't in contact with any person. We weren't stopping anywhere. Um, now, this is the bit which really gets my goat, James. The police officer said... When, you know, the mum said, come on, you know, we're not actually speaking to, we don't cross paths with anyone here. Why are you finding us? The police officer said, we are smashing it on the roads today. So that's the rule of law in this country, James. Yep. We're smashing it on the roads today, mate. So have 1600 buck fine. Uh, so that's what I mean. Um, New South Wales have said it's okay for learners to get out there and drive, but Victoria have said they're still not allowed to do it. Um, and this is what we're talking about. This is ridiculous unnecessary lockdowns and rules against people which are too much and it's just it's more the idea that it's like they've decided today they're going to smash it whatever that means and find everyone in sight and for that that police officer to be fair and that uh those uh are my villain of the week okay uh, i've just researched this a bit more and i abandoned everything i said before uh this is a police-wide <laughs> issue because deputy commissioner shane Patton warned l to drivers that they shouldn't be out and driving unless yeah. it was essential uh but he said he was considering withdrawing the fine uh and the health minister jenny mccarkos has criticized her family for going out and drive so i think the rule that we got to take is if you are a learner driver please don't drive for a year please don't develop your skills and please forget the skills that you've already developed because apparently it's uh you know who knows who you could infect driving in your car by yourself with someone you live with and not stopping if you walk, like you're literally walking from your front door to your car with your parents yeah. who you already live with yeah. and you're not allowed to drive with them, that is exactly what we've been talking about throughout the whole episode. How is it safe to go to a hospital or a yeah. uh, supermarket, I should say, or a hospital? Uh, that just doesn't make sense. And Jenny McCarkos was one of those uh, politicians that was dancing in Bali who I congratulated because she's like 52 and she still was partying all night. So I'm disappointed that Jenny's, you know, let me down effectively. <laughs> That's things. I, I like her pro-party policy, but I don't like her anti-people mm. uh, driving around policy. All right. Uh, on, that is it for the start of the show. Let us go to Brendan O'Neill. Okay, we're now joined once again by great friend of the show and editor of Spiked, Brendan O'Neill. Welcome back to the show. Hey, guys. How is England at the moment? Uh, that's what I want to know. So there's a whole lot of things going on. I want to talk to you about your column recently. So what is going on over in England? Uh, it's not good, to be honest. Um, around 5,000 people have died from from or with COVID-19. This is a big point of controversy right now. Um, so it's hitting us pretty hard. Um, Boris has been hospitalized. The Queen has done one of her incredibly rare addresses to the nation. So it's really, um, it's a serious health crisis. But I don't think the country is coping with it very well. And lots of bad authoritarian curtain curtain twitching instincts are coming into play in relation to the whole thing and and the thing that's worrying me uh, in the longer term i think we, we do have to fight a short term or medium term battle against this virus but the thing that's worrying me in the longer term is the question of what kind of nation will be at the end of this will we be 
an unfree, economically wrecked nation full of finger pointers and grasses and squealers, because at the moment, that is where we're going. And I find that really incredibly worrying. So, Brendan, you've been outspoken on this issue uh, and, and a lot of controversy around what you've been saying. What do you think should happen? Um, well, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not an expert, as everyone keeps reminding me every single day. Uh, but my view is that uh, I think the lockdown, certainly a long-term lockdown, I think is a terrible mistake. Um, and I agree with those experts who are not getting much airtime at all, who argue that a long-term lockdown could have um, more destructive consequences for health and even life. Um, than the virus itself. So I'm worried about that. Lots of people, if you raise these questions, people will say, oh, you care more about the economy than people's lives. Well, that's such a false distinction because the economy is people's lives. This is where people work. This is how we produce things. This is how we make enough money to have a health service and to have housing and to, to create food and, and other necessities. So if you harm the economy in a grave, serious way, you harm human health and you harm human life. So uh, I'm worried that we are um, creating, we're fighting a virus, we're fighting a health problem, but we could be creating newer health problems in the process. In my view is that I think it sh we should have taken a more um, surgical strike. In this sense, I agree with um, David Katz from the Yale Griffin Prevention Center in the US who wrote a very good piece for the New York Times. And he's not the only expert making this point. And he said that what we need in relation to a virus like this is a surgical strike against the virus rather than this blanket approach which causes so much collateral damage in terms of jobs, the economy and people's health. And, um, you know, I think as a, a better surgical strike approach might have been to um, uh, offer voluntary isolation to the elderly and the vulnerable. I always think these things need to be voluntary. We should have offered them voluntary protection, the voluntary ability to isolate themselves from other people in society for a period of time. We should have allowed everyone else to carry on working as much as possible. Um, and I think that would have been a far better approach than what we currently have, which is unprecedented in human history, which is the quarantining of well people. The quarantining in the British case of um, 66 million, essentially, 66 million healthy people are essentially under house arrest and are only allowed out under very strict circumstances. That I think is a mistake. It's never been done, been done before. And I think it will have bad consequences. Yeah, so that's the thing uh, I agree with where I get the idea of an economic lockdown just for the few weeks it might take for people to figure out what this virus is, what kind of solutions do we have already, what are the masks situation in the, in the country. But when people start going... Uh, this needs to be the case for six months and people like uh, Britain's unemployment's uh, going skyrocketing. Australia's unemployment is skyrocketing as well. Uh, I just think we've heard too much on the side of caution. Yes. Uh, it's, del it's completely delusional. We have experts in the UK who are now saying the lockdown might last for three months or six months or 12 months. Uh, I think they are completely mad. The idea that you could lock down, a mature economy for 12 months is completely and utterly insane. Um, the country would grind to a halt. Um, we would see the kind of 
poverty and destitution that we haven't seen in the UK for a very, very long time. And also people wouldn't put up with it. People aren't animals you can just put in a cage for 12 months. Uh, people, uh, you know, they, they value their freedom and their agency and their right to work and their right to um, meet with other people. Now, I know they will be written off as selfish if they raise these questions, which I think they will start to do in a few weeks' time. But it's not selfish at all. That's what it means to be part of a community, part of a, an economy, and part of a society that only works when people are pulling together. So <clears throat> the, the talk of a long-term lockdown, I think, is just nuts and inc in, incredibly sinister, in fact. And I think these this is the problem with you know, we really need medical expertise at a time like this. We do need our politicians to listen to medical experts, virologists, epidemiologists, people who understand diseases. But those people, while they are great on those issues, they are not the best placed people to decide what should happen to society and the economy. They're not experts in economic life and they're not experts in social life. So they can advise the government, but then we also need political judgment by our democratically elected leaders. Political judgment in the sense of saying, okay, how can we protect the old and the vulnerable while getting economic life back in action and getting people back to work? Let's look at what's happening. You know, over the past fortnight, 10 million more Americans have claimed uh, unemployment insurance. In the UK over the past week or so, a million more people are claiming um, universal credit which is a fancy word for poverty assistance. It's really what you ask for when you are really, really struggling. Um, millions of people have lost their jobs in America and the UK and, and elsewhere, um, in hospitality, in um, uh, particularly in retail and other areas too. This is already a deeply serious problem. And in the UK's case, we're only about two weeks into the lockdown. So. The government has got to start thinking right now about how to ease the lockdown and uh, at some point to bring it completely to an end. My view is that we can do another two weeks maximum and after that the economic harm will be too great for us to carry on doing this. Brendan, I like the point you made before about uh, voluntary measures to help people, particularly elderly people, and it occurred to me Certainly in Australia, I've only seen one example of elderly people actually being asked what they think. Uh, and, and there actually is probably a lot of elderly people out there who might think, actually, I don't want the whole country to be, you know, uh, be a car crash because of me. I've had a really good run, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Have, have old people in, uh, in the UK been, been had much of a voice in this? Uh, you know, not, no one's really asking for their opinion. They ju it's just expected that they will... Um, accept the lockdown and love the lockdown because it's protecting their lives and so on. But, you know, we have to be realistic about this. Can, you know, think about someone who's very old. Think about someone who's in their late 80s or their early 90s. And you get to that age where you start to think, I have another six months left. I have another year left. Um, I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to visit family. I'm going to visit friends. I might even go abroad if I'm, if I'm healthy enough to do so. Those people can't do that now. Um, they can't do anything. They can't leave their houses. There are no shops open. The pubs aren't open, of course. Um, so if you think about very old people, there's a distinct possibility that they will be spending the final few months of their lives in under house arrest, which I just think is so horrible. And that's why I think the element of choice 
and open democratic discussion is so important because there will be old people who will say, okay, I'll take my chances with the virus rather than lock myself down for the rest of however long I've got left. There will be old people who will make that choice and it will be a perfectly rational rational choice for some of them to make and it, and it should be up to them to do it. I think even protective measures which are very restrictive on people's lives should be voluntary. Um, so I think if we do ease the lockdown and the government says, well, we have to keep protecting the vulnerable for, and the old for a period of time, I do think that needs to be completely voluntary and we can give them all the advice and then it should be down to them to decide as autonomous individuals what they want to do. But, you know, um, I think the health impact off the lockdown on older people is something that we're not talking about. Um, I remember a few days before Boris decided to close the pubs in the UK, I, I looked in my local pubs um, at lunchtime and I wanted to see, you know, who goes into the pubs during the day, who's using these pubs. And it was always just these old men um, sat at a table, often on their own, sometimes with a friend, with a newspaper and a pint of beer. And I just thought, you know, some of these people are probably widowers. Um, they don't get out much. You know, going to the pub every day for a couple of pints is probably their one connection with the world. Now they don't have that. I have no idea where these old men are now. Presumably they're at home. They're feeling unhealthy. They're feeling completely disengaged from society. They're feeling depressed and scared. This is not healthy. Um, so I, uh, one of the reasons I think we need to ease the lockdown is to ease the burden that's been inflicted upon older people who live alone, vulnerable people who live alone, who should be given the choice to engage in society as they see fit. One of the things you brought up at the start of this interview, and it's also been the subject of two of your recent columns over on Spiked, which everyone should be reading, uh, it's like the, cu the culture that we're going to be left with at the end of this. Now, you had one article where you talked about you went to Hyde Park and you were just sitting by yourself on a bench and you were told to move on by a police officer. And then your other column, you talk about how there are a whole lot of people out there in Britain and I'm, you know, we're all seeing it in Australia too, people who are very happy to get on the phone with police and dob people in for doing something that not only two weeks ago was like legally permissible but just normal uh it just seems that like we uh, people are too easily slid into this is how things should be and this is sensible and this is rational and this is how i want things to be from now on that's one of the things i find most worrying about this the the, the speed and the ease with which so many people accepted this state of affairs that, that has kind of knocked me for six i have to be honest and i find it very concerning i'm not sure how long it will last um there is popular compliance with the lockdown at the moment but in the uk but if the government keeps pushing and that they're, they're now currently threatening to ban outdoor exercise so you essentially would not be allowed to leave your house I think that would be such a grave error and it would cause massive, massive um, social consequences. But I think the, um, you know, when I was in Hyde Park, it was such a deeply unpleasant experience, to be honest. Hyde Park is one of my favorite places in the world. It's, a, it's an amazing space. People go there frequently to hang out. And when I was there um, at the weekend, it was just full of police patrolling, telling people off. They, they reprimanded me for sitting on a bench. I literally sat down for two minutes and wrote a text message while I was sitting down. They asked me, they said to me, this is an exercise, what are you doing here? Um, I saw them uh, tell people to leave the park, including a man who was just sitting under a tree, another man who was sat on a bench uh, on his laptop, and they said to him, you're not allowed to work outside, you have to go home. 
that's not in the guidelines at all. So it was really, really quite shocking. It felt like Hyde Park had been taken over by a police state. It was so horrible. And um, alongside that, we have seen the emergence of this snitching culture. You know, the police here say that they are inundated with phone calls from people saying that their neighbor has gone out for two runs in a day. You're only allowed to go out for one run. Um, journalists are the worst. My profession has not covered itself in glory in relation to this crisis. You know, journalists are always taking photos of people in parks and posting them on Twitter and saying, look at all these people. We need a harder lockdown. And my response to that is always, well, what the hell are you doing in the park? Why do you have the right to go into the park and take photos of people, but they don't have the right to go there and do exercise? So there's a real double standard. I really dislike this curtain twitching um, authoritarian, this evangelical authoritarianism that has gripped parts of the UK. And that will have, I think, a pretty long term damaging impact on the social fabric. Brenda, do you, has this been a harder sell for you personally? I noticed that when you were talking about Brexit a lot, a lot of the you know the comments underneath your Instagram posts, for example, were um, in support of what you were saying. I've doing a bit of an Instagram stalk of you for this interview. I noticed in your comments there's a little bit more uh, people disagreeing with you than there otherwise is. Are you and you did mention before that this has knocked you for six the level of um, support for this. Do you, is this a harder sell for you individually? Oh, it's terrible. It's really, really difficult to make these arguments. That's one of the most worrying things as, you know, really only a handful of writers and commentators in the UK who are making these kinds of points and the demonization of them is off the scale. I've not seen anything like it. It's worse even than trying to talk about climate change. Uh, it's worse than trying to talk about um, general issues of liberty and, and other things which can prove quite controversial to talk about in public life. This is by far the worst I've ever seen. Um, and anyone who raises questions about the lockdown or anyone who says um, our response to the disease could prove to be worse than the disease itself in the long term, anyone who raises any of these issues is immediately shouted down as evil and horrible, doesn't care about old people, doesn't care about vulnerable people, wants old people to die, um, shouldn't be on TV, shouldn't be on radio. We've got to silence them. I mean, it is just um, the most censorious culture that I can remember, uh, which to my mind makes it so much more important to, to raise these questions because it's precisely in an emergency, and this is an emergency, it's precisely in an emergency that you need freedom of speech. Freedom of speech doesn't become less important in a crisis, it becomes more important. Because if our governments are asking us to do uh, very restrictive things. They're basically asking us to sacrifice our fundamental liberties for a period of time in order to save people's lives. Now, most of us at the moment accept that, that could, that's necessary. Um, but you have to ask questions when they're asking for such sacrifices. You have to say, is this the right thing to do? How long will it last? When will, will we get our freedoms back? Will we get them all back? Or will the coronavirus bill, which they've passed through Parliament, will that stay on the statute books for longer than necessary? It's the most authoritarian, draconian piece of legislation that has ever been passed in the UK in peacetime. So uh, freedom of speech, dissent, open discussion and pushing back against the drift of things is more important at a time like this than it is even in, in, in a normal time. So the censoriousness and the desire to shut people down for raising questions is, I think, one of the most dangerous responses to the crisis. 
Uh, is there a class dimension to all of this? This is something I've been thinking about where a whole lot of people who say, you know, uh, who are very, very pro-lockdown, and I'm, I'm with you, okay? They, we do need to stay at home when and when we can. But the people that are getting the most uh, evangelical, the people that are getting the most high, uh, uh, high on Twitter about telling people off seem to be people that also have very nice places to stay inside in. And that might not be the case for people that... You say, like, uh, there was all this public shaming of people on a New York subway train, but it was a New York subway train in one of the most working-class districts of New York. These are people that can't afford to stay home. They need to go get a job. And you think about other people that might not feel safe at home with if, with abusive partners or stuff like that. I just feel there's also a bit of a class divide in who's lecturing and who's hearing. A huge class divide. Absolutely unquestionable. Um, I've really been struck by that. You know, the people who are most pro-lockdown and, and anti open discussion about the lockdown are the ones who live in nice houses, probably have gardens and um, can work from home, right? These are people who, you know, they make podcasts like we're doing now or they write (laughs) write articles or, or, you know, they run little businesses or whatever they might be doing. They can do it from home. They live in nice spaces and they can go in their garden when they want to go outside. But there are millions and millions of people who don't live like that. There are millions of people who have just been forced to stop working and can no longer work, and that can feel pretty devastating to people. There are millions of people who don't have gardens, who live in sunless flats, who live in small rooms, who might live in crowded accommodation with noisy children or, or vulnerable relatives that they're looking after. These people need to get outside. They need the sun. They need fresh air. They need exercise. So the the snooty, um, draconian, uh, evangelical authoritarianism of those sections of society who are saying, well, I'm staying home. Why don't you? Is just really, really annoying. And I think they need to have a word with themselves and stop being such complete snobs. You know, one of the worst sinners in relation to all of this is is the kind of millennial left you know, we have these kind of millennial socialists in the UK. I'm sure, I'm sure you have them in Australia too. Nah, never heard of them, man. <laughs> yeah, and they were feverishly pro-lockdown. That uh, They were actually demanding a harder and harder lockdown, which is so bizarre because these are exactly the people who told us that Boris Johnson was a fascist and that uh, Brexit Britain would be this horrendous fascist nation that would be um, just an authoritarian hellhole. And yet they're asking Boris, this supposed fascist, to shut down the whole of society, put millions of people under house arrest and stop the working classes from working. So the Stalinist instincts uh, of the millennial left have been utterly exposed by this process. They love this authoritarianism. They love the fact that people are now completely under the purview of the state, uh, increasingly reliant on welfare, welfareism. They love this because it empowers people like them. It empowers people who are well-connected, who might work in the public sector, who might work in the welfare sector. Their, their moral authority is boosted through this whole process. And they don't give a damn for people who can no longer go to work and who can no longer earn the living that they'd previously been earning. So the class dynamic, I think, is incredibly pronounced. And I think it might prove to be one of the flashpoints going ahead. So, Brendan, we saw you on telly the other night uh, praising the Queen for her leadership during this time. What's happened to you, Brendan? This is a change in tune for you. 
I know I'm ashamed of myself. I'm a, I've, I'm a, I'm a lifelong Republican. I've always been a Republican. Um, I still am. Uh, I, I think we should abolish the monarchy, which is not a, a super popular point of view in the UK. Um, but that's my position. Uh, I think if we have a head of state, it should be what someone we elect rather than someone who was born into a particular family. Um, but the fact is that the Queen's message was actually, uh, she said what no politicians have, ha no politicians have said. She, uh, and she said what the media class is avoiding saying. She said, we will succeed. We will beat this. There will be better days. And then she evoked Vera Lynn and said, we will meet again. And of course the whole nation started crying, uh, essentially. So it, she, she, the, th the reason I liked it is because it was such a striking contrast to the doom mongering and the bitchiness and the snitching and the and the horrible atmosphere that has emerged around virus the virus particularly from the media elite particularly amongst the twitterati who are using this virus as an opportunity to demonize their fellow citizens to bash boris constantly and to say britain is this horrible ill-equipped country in which millions of people are now going to die it's, it's so depressing it's so inaccurate and it's so full of kind of this millennial dystopian dread um and so i think a lot of people just breathed a sigh of relief when the queen came along and said listen guys we're a pretty good country uh we've got lots of fellow feeling for each other and we're going to beat this and everything will be okay it was that it was a humanist message it's quite funny that it fell to a monarch who's traditionally been seen as quite stiff and wooden and not very emotional it's funny that it fell to her to give the humanist take that the media class has so clearly avoided given so given so that's what i liked about it i thought it was it was what a lot of people wanted to hear awesome well until we meet again brendan o'neill editor of spikes make sure you're checking out that website it is the best uh thank you so much for joining us again on the show thanks guys all right thank you to brendan o'neill always great to catch up with him and uh yeah just such an interesting thinker why can't we all be like brendan o'neill and uh what a bloke. let's run through two stories that we saw and not often this happens, but when it does, it should be celebrated. For this first story, mm. Peter Gregory is a story. So last week, people might have heard <laughs> Peter Gregory's uh, Peter Gregory's big rant, which I agree with, that the coronavirus yeah. should be called the communist virus because it happened in a communist country and because of the totalitarian instincts in the nation and the need to propagandize. We didn't know how bad the virus was until it was too late for the world. Uh, Peter well Gregory called it the communist virus, and that did not go down well on Twitter. So, Pete, talk us through when you found out that you were an internet influencer slash celebrity? Well, I was surprised that I wasn't already an internet uh, celebrity, so it was a bit disappointing to find that out. No, it was Saturday night. I was just having some pre-drinks before our uh, Matt, one of my many managers, Hugh Tobin, was about to do a DJ set, which was absolutely lifted the roof on many a household throughout Melbourne and the world. Yeah, this was, a, uh, this, this was an internet online, like everyone could tune in. Pete didn't go out clubbing and our manager yeah. wasn't... We had an illegal rave. It was awesome. Actually, how good would an illegal <laughs> rave be at the moment? Anyway, that's not the story. The story is, and Evan said on our little Slack chat, um, oh, 30,000 people have watched your video. And I was like, oh, see, the people agree. You know, the people are with me on this, standing up against communism. Little did I know that, in fact, there's a lot of people out there, James, surprised as you might be, who want to get on the front foot and defend an ideology that's killed 100 million people. Not only that, but they want to do that on their Saturday night. So that was interesting to discover that. And I thought at that stage, I think there was, there's now about 80,000 views of the video, but at that stage, there was only 30,000 views. And I was like, oh, 
I'm going to have so many more Twitter followers now. Do you know how many Twitter followers I had, James, as a result of 30,000 people watching it? How many new followers? Have a guess. How many new followers? I'm going to guess. uh, See, you know the two numbers I want to guess and I have to keep my job, so I'm going to say 65. (laughs) There were eight new followers. Oh, eight new followers. How's that for a strike rate out of 30,000 views? Uh, So, no, no, it was was crazy. It's like, oh, you know, don't bag the communists. Like, what, what, how is that a thing? Yeah, the idea that this is like the excesses of the free market come back to roost, it's a hot take. It's a scorching hot take. Like, Mm. I get like, oh, this only happens because of globalization, but that's not exactly a left wing argument now, is it? That is like when you're very, very far right and you're like, hey, isolationism, this this should be what we do all the time. Yeah, exactly right. So no, it's good to be famous. I should um I should go through because I only looked I only looked at three or four and I haven't checked it for a couple of days. So I should see what the flavour of the criticism is. Have you noticed any changes within yourself now that you are a celebrity? Well, I've sort of um I need an agent. So that's yep, the, that's I'll do the it. one thing. I I think that <laughs> okay yeah the the thing about you Didn't know you once s- you become you used famous, to be an agent, James, can't you be your own agent? I did used to be an agent, but I feel like I've moved on from that role now. I used to be an agent for um, that very same DJ that I was talking about before, and now he's playing the internet every Saturday night. Um, no, but you've, when you're famous like me, James, you can't forget the little people. That's the crucial thing. So right, I'm, that's I'm a still, good, that's I remember a good you, mate. Sure. I remember you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, all right. So one person that does need to remember that there are people in the world is a uh, great transition by me, John Hewson, who in the conversation uh, this week had one of the creepier articles ever written yeah. by a guy who led not only a party in a liberal democracy, but also the liberal party in a liberal democracy. You just think yeah. when you've got two, twice the word liberal in that sentence, you'd think mm. the guy would have some idea of what civil liberties are. But anyway, so we talked about how... Uh, it's basically this article about climate change and... He goes off on this weird tangent where he starts to say, I'll read it out here. So individual, he's talking about the positives from coronavirus and talking about how quickly people can mobilize. All right. So here he goes. Individual governments have demonstrated how quickly they can move once they accept the reality of a crisis. We've also seen just how far they're prepared to go in terms of policy responses. Lockdowns, social distancing, testing, rapid and historically significant fiscal expansions, and massive liquidity injections. It's noteworthy that issues that in normal times could not have been ignored, such as civil liberties and concerns about intrusive governments and effective competition, have so easily been set aside as part of emergency responses. Now, John, that is a bad thing that happened. Like, I'm not saying that, like, we shouldn't have done anything, but I'm saying, like, no one is looking at the curtailing of civil liberties. No one sensible is looking at the curtailing of civil liberties and the curtailing of things that were good about the normal world and going, like, don't miss that. How good is this? Yeah. How good is it that uh, there's people not allowed to protest anymore? Well, yeah, exactly right. And it's this kind of thing like, oh, yeah, this is great. Now it shows that we can do this. Fantastic. So glad coronavirus came along. Uh, obviously didn't watch the program or listen to the program last week when I said that climate change was over. Climate change is no longer a thing. So you wasted your time, John, in terms of writing this article. But the bit that I liked the most, James, is, and let me just scroll up, is the start, not the bit that I liked the most, the bit that I disliked the most, really, is the start where he said, climate deniers have been hanging out for the United Nations next big summit to fail. In a sense, the coronavirus and its induced policy response, responses have more than satisfied their wildest dreams. The pandemic is our wildest dreams. People who question, you know, what policies we should use to fight climate change 
are happy that we've got the coronavirus. Is it nice to verbal people like that, John Hewson? That doesn't sound very nice. Yeah, while I'm like not exactly crying myself to sleep that that conference didn't go ahead, I wouldn't describe it as my wildest dream either. Yeah. Like, let's get yeah, the Denver Nuggets a championship before we start talking about the end of conferences like that. Is that your wildest dream? That's your wildest uh, dream. I, yeah. Oh, There's well, got to be okay. a few things attached to that, though, like the after party and all, you know, all no, sorts it's of me, things. It's just me sitting there going, we did it. We did it. <laughs> that is crap. This anyway, the thing is... <laughs> the thing is... It would be the like, Leicester City of the NBA. He goes... The what, sorry? The Leicester City. It would be the Leicester City champions of the NBA. Yeah, well, yeah, there you go, mate. That 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 would be great. Back to John Hewson. It's just like, you know, oh, it's how can you say? First of all, he calls them deniers all the way through the article, which is just clearly being antagonistic. You know, it's to to use the word denier to talk about someone who has a different opinion on climate, and secondly, to say they'd be really happy because the coronavirus. But that it's just odd to me how much he's trying to dehumanize the people that he disagrees with. It's like. I just, yeah, yeah, and then going on about stuff. how, but then he goes on to say how good it is that we've stopped caring about people's freedoms. So who is happy yeah. about this, John? Yeah, All I right. don't um, understand how he now something he almost. Yeah, I'm done. All right, uh, so that is it for the show this week. Uh, now, last week we discussed the idea of having a uh, sort of show and tell, just basically like what we're watching, reading, or listening to. So, I uh, it's without notice for you, Pete. So you can share if you want to. No, no, I could, I've, got, I've got one. Do you want me to go? Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so what you said we couldn't do TV shows, which made it difficult for me. No, it was like bonus what, points. We've done a fair few TV shows. What I am reading, I have become... Well, I haven't actually started reading it yet, but I'm about to start reading it. <laughs> and that is, it's time I've become that person. I am going to start reading The Barefoot Investor. Oh, that's right here, actually. Ah, uh, that's so bloke in their twenties. Not that I'm in my twenties, but it's so bloke in their twenties to read the Barefoot Investor. It's time we've got a bit of extra time at home. It's time to get my finances in order to grow up, become an adult, and I'm going to read the Barefoot Investor. And yeah. presumably by the next week, I'll be so rich that I won't have to do this podcast anymore. And um, you know, it's been great. Uh, for the extra bloke in their twenties, Barefoot Investor, uh, my parents bought it for me. No one's ever like there bought the Barefoot Investor for themselves. I think it's always bought nah. for you by someone who's better off financially than you are. And this is my my housemate's book that was given to him by his parents. So you're 100% correct that it wasn't my purchase. Uh, sorry, I can't remember the bloke's name who wrote it, but sorry, you didn't get an extra sale out of this one. I have met him actually. <laughs> I thought you couldn't remember your housemate's name. <laughs> nah, who is that? But uh, yeah, no, nah, it's like the R.M. Williams shoes and the you know chinos and the the you know you know what I'm trying to say. That standard. Yeah, I'm actually thing. wearing chinos and Aaron Williams right now, so uh, yeah. I've got your, I feel got your pin, mate. I feel verbaled <laughs> and I feel exposed. Uh, all right, uh, my one this week. I I've been tuning through Better Call Saul, but I can't do TV shows. Uh, okay, this one isn't exactly covering myself in glory here, but I have recently purchased Football Manager for the first time. That game is you. addictive. That game, as I said, is so addictive. <laughs> Mate, when I was in year 12, and I'm very old, when I was in year 12, I had to delete that from my computer because I was like, mate, you are going to end up failing your VCE unless you delete this game. And it is, I'm sure I've never taken, um, you know, I'm sure it is like the most, 
hardest drug you can possibly imagine. You'll never achieve the same high ever again as you get at the height of your football manager addiction. And that is one thing you're going to have to deal with once you quit and give up is that you're just never going to have that high again. Damn. All right. Well, uh, Pete, your internet's kind of fallen apart now. So I reckon that's as good a place to end the show as any. So uh, thank you to Brendan O'Neill and thank you to everyone listening to this special bonus episode. We'll see you guys on Friday.